Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. We're continuing our study of the Gospel of Matthew. We come this morning to the end of chapter 24 and the beginning of chapter 25. So we will begin reading together at verse 43 of chapter 24, and we will read in chapter 25 down to verse 30. These are the words of God. But know this, said Jesus, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his master made ruler over his household, to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming, and begins to beat his fellow servants, and to eat and drink with the drunkards, The master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While a bridegroom delayed... They all slumbered and slept, and at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And when they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you do not know neither the day or the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And so he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over over a few things. I will make you faithful uh, over, or make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also, who had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. 
Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let us pray. Our Lord God, we seek to be your faithful and wise servants in this day in which you have called us to live. We pray you would give us understanding by your spirit of what that means. And we pray you'd give us the strength and the wisdom we need to serve you now and to bring glory to your name, that we might enter into your joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, of course, we're in the middle of the Olivet Discourse, which is actually the longest discourse in the Gospel of Matthew. It's longer even than the Sermon on the Mount. And as we approach and enter into chapter 5, we're making the final turn and entering the home stretch of the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus makes final and pointed applications to his disciples. So let's take stock of the ground we've covered so far. Now, Jesus has said that he is going to come in judgment on apostate Jerusalem. That's Jerusalem that is going to harden itself, confirming what they did in the crucifixion of Christ, when for 40 years they are going to reject the testimony of the Holy Spirit and of the church. So he begins the Olivet Discourse by saying, Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another, referring to the temple. Uh, Jesus has promised that he's going to do this within the lifetimes of the disciples who were listening to him at the time. He says in verse 34 of chapter 24, Assuredly, which is the word amen. In other words, before God, I'm telling you, listen to me, get this, bank on this, don't forget this. This generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. Jesus here is not talking about things that lie far, far in the future. He's talking about things that are going to occur in their lifetimes. The reason why they're asking him and the reason why he's telling them is he does not want them to get caught up in the judgment. He wants his disciples to be delivered. So he has told them in verse 16 of Matthew 24 that if they are uh, some of the disciples that are living in Judea, they must be ready to drop everything and flee to the mountains, which is exactly what the first century Christians did. There was a rock fortress in the mountains 30 or 40 miles from Jerusalem, and many, many of the Christians of Judea fled there in the first century because Judea was going to be a death trap. When the Roman uh, armies came in, they were going to lay waste they were going to burn it all, they were going to tear down the temple, and many, many were going to die. So Jesus has said, you be watching, because you're going to need to flee. He has given them a number of signs or events that will occur to alert them that the day is near. Matthew 24, 33, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the door. What things? All kinds of stuff. This was one of the craziest times in recorded history. There were earthquakes, there were famines. Throughout the Roman Empire, there were civil wars throughout the empire. The, the empire was teetering. In one of the years uh, in, the, in the 60s, as the Jewish War for Independence approached in uh, 67 AD, you had uh, three emperors die in a single year. Uh, you had crazy Nero on the throne at one point in the first Christian persecution. So it was a crazy time. 
But he has told them to be watching so they know when it is near, so that they are ready to flee. Jesus has told them that no one except the Father knows the exact day or hour, Matthew 24, 36, and also 25, 13. Of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father also, uh, my Father only. And Jesus has told them, though, that this need to flee, this event, is going to come suddenly. He says that it's going to be like Noah's flood, Matthew 24, verses 37 through 39. He says, just like in the days of Noah, that's what the coming of the Son of Man is going to be. The flood of Noah was a temporal judgment. He's not talking about the final judgment on the last day. The flood of Noah was a historical judgment. He says that's what the coming of the Son of Man is going to be. He's talking about the coming of the Son of Man in judgment in the first century. He's not talking about the final return of Jesus, which will occur on the last day. He says it's going to be like Noah's flood. They're eating and drinking. They're getting married. They're going through life like like normal, and then all of a sudden, one day, the flood comes upon them and takes them all away. He's not talking about an evacuation of believers. He's not talking about an evacuation of the church. In Noah's flood, who was taken and who was left? The wicked were taken. The unbelievers were taken away in judgment. Who was left? The righteous were left to inherit the earth. Jesus is saying that's what it's going to be like in the first century, like Noah's flood. He says it's going to be like a thief in the light, Matthew 24, 43. He says the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come. He would have watched and not allowed his house to broken into. The point is that they don't know, and so they must watch and be ready, and that is the point of Matthew 24, 44. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. That's why he tells them in this text that when you see a certain sign, he refers to it as the abomination of desolation, referred to as in Daniel the prophet, the Gospel of Luke, which was written largely to Gentile believers as opposed to the Gospel of Matthew, which is written largely to Jewish, does not use all the same symbolism. And so what Luke says is he doesn't refer to the abomination of desolation. He refers to Jerusalem being surrounded by armies. So it has something to do with that kind of timing. He says when that occurs, you don't go home, don't go back. You leave, you flee right now. And so he says that's what it's going to be like, and you must watch and be ready. Now, we come to our text today, and the point that Jesus is making here is he's speaking in very practical terms. These are, this is not a theoretical event to these disciples. He's not talking about something that's going to happen thousands of years in the future to some generation. He's talking about events that is going to occur to them and to their children, and therefore they have to be ready. There is going to be a challenge that they are going to face Beyond the fact that all of this is going to occur and beyond the fact that they do not know the day or the hour. And that extra challenge is delay. There is going to be a significant delay between Jesus' warnings and instructions and his actual coming to destroy Jerusalem. It would turn out to be 40 years. Now, 40 years doesn't sound like a lot to us because we're thinking about it's been 2,000 years since Jesus spoke these words. But if you're living in this time frame, if you're watching and waiting for these events, 40 years is a long, long time. If you think about disciples who are 20 years old when Jesus spoke these words, they're young, they're just getting married, they're just starting families, they're just starting out, 40 years means they're 60. 
Their whole lifetime just about has come by. They've watched their children grow up and get married. They're having grandkids. Forty years almost becomes like an eternity in that sense. It's most of a lifetime. Now, this delay is going to make the trials and the hardships particularly acute. The delay is going to produce a judgment, a sorting out among the disciples himself. Jesus has already been talking about the judgment that is going to come on apostate Jerusalem. Jerusalem that finally and definitively takes its stand against the Messiah and rejects the Messiah. He's already talked about that judgment. Now he's making clear there's going to be a judgment. There's going to be a sorting out, which is what the Greek word for, for judgment means. It means distinguishing this from that, distinguishing wheat from tares, distinguishing sheep from goats. Okay? The Greek word means to distinguish this from that and to sort it out into separate piles. And the Greek word for, for judgment is the word that we get the word crisis from. A crisis is a judgment. A crisis is a sorting out. A crisis distinguishes between sheep and goats, between wheat and tares, and Jesus is saying to them, there's also going to be a crisis, a judgment, a sorting out within the church within the disciples, within the covenant community, but within all of those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, and it's going to occur in the first generation during their lifetimes, and the deciding litmus test between true disciples, wheat, and false disciples, tares, is going to be pointed out through this long delay. So the delay is going to be the thing that really enhances the hardship and really enhances the trial. So you notice that all of the parables in our text deal with disciples. They all deal with professing believers. Everybody in these parables is a professing disciple, believer, servant of Jesus Christ. And all of these parables deal with delay. The servant in the parable of the faithful and wise servant versus the evil servant, is a professing servant of the master. It is the same servant. You notice there's not a mention of more than one servant in this parable. It's the same servant. The question is, what servant will he turn out to be? Is he going to turn out to be the faithful and wise servant, or is he going to turn out to be the evil servant? And it is the delay of the master's return that ends up pointing out the difference between faithful and wise versus evil. In the parable of the ten virgins, all are ten, all ten are professing attendants of the bride who are waiting for the coming of the bridegroom. In the parable of the talents, all three servants profess to be fable servants who believe in the master and his affairs as well as his promise to return. It is the long time that the master is gone that brings out the difference between the servants who are truly committed to the master and those who aren't. And let me jump back just for a second to the parable of the ten virgins which comes right in the middle of this passage of parables because this whole idea of waiting for the bridegroom and of being attendants of the bride really provides the backdrop for uh, this uh, passage and really for much of the New Testament. To understand this, you have to understand the ancient Jewish wedding tradition. The way the Jews did weddings was very different from the way that we do them today. In the ancient Jewish tradition, the marriage vows, the vows of husband to wife and wife to husband, were exchanged when 
the bride and the bridegroom were betrothed. They were exchanged when they were engaged. So when he asks her to marry him, and she says yes, they would have a ceremony. That's when they would exchange vows, okay? That's why if one of them was unfaithful after that point, it was no longer called fornication, it was called adultery. It's adultery after that point because the vows have been taken. So the, but the marriage would not be consummated, it would not be completely fulfilled until the time of the wedding feast. Okay? So you had two stages. You have the vows being exchanged at the time of the betrothal or the engagement. And then sometime later, you would have a wedding feast in which the marriage would be consummated and celebrated. Now, the feast could be months later. Could be a month, could be two, three, four, five, six months later. And the only one who knew exactly when the wedding feast was going to be was the father of the groom. So it was very different. In our tradition, it's the family of the bride who puts the wedding on. Ask me. I object. I like the Jewish tradition. It was the father of the groom who was responsible. That just shows you how far we have fallen. So not even the groom knew when the wedding feast was going to be. The father of the groom is the only one. He's quietly, secretly uh, getting everything ready. And then all of a sudden, one evening, the father says to his son, the groom, son, I think tonight would be a great night for wedding feast, don't you? Now the son has to be ready, and his, his groomsmen have to be ready, because when the father says that, the son and his groomsmen, they drop everything and they light torches, and they proceed through the village. And the groom shouts out for his bride, and the groomsmen take up the shout. And then as the people in the village hear it, they come out with torches, and they join in this procession, and everybody's shouting and yelling out for the bride. Now the bride has to be ready. She doesn't know when it's going to be. And her virgins, her attendants, her, her bridesmaids have to be ready. They have to be ready to go because they don't know when it's going to be. But when they hear that, they scramble, they light their lamps so that they can join in this beautiful torch-lit procession that the whole village is involved in, and they go with the groom and with all of his attendants and with all the townspeople to the house of the father of the groom. The attendants of the bride are going to go there. When they get there, it's all set up for a big feast. The attendants of the bride are going to take her off in a separate room. They're going to take all the jewels and the finery and everything else that the father of the bride, uh, father of the groom provides, and they're going to get her ready. They're going to make her beautiful and glorious as a bride. Then they're going to bring her out. She's going to be presented and so forth. The groom and the bride are going to go off right then and there to another room, and the, and the wedding feast is going to be consummated. And there's this, huge, uh, there's this huge celebration that's going on. They're going to come back out and be part of the celebration. So that is the backdrop that is here. So in each parable, it is the delay that makes the situation so difficult. It's the delay that brings out the difference between true faith that bears fruit over the long haul and shallow, surfacy faith that only hangs in there when times are looking good but ends up turning cold and turning away and not lasting when times look bad and stretch out. 
So, Jesus is communicating to his disciples here an extra bit of information. Although they do not know the time, they know the time frame, their own, their own lifetimes, their own generation. And he's telling them something further. There is going to be a significant delay. And it's going to be a delay long enough to make it a real trial to stay faithful, a real temptation to give up, and to give in to normal Judaic life without Jesus, the Messiah. Now, with all of that in mind, let's look at what actually occurred in the first century. As I've already mentioned, it was 40 long years between Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and his coming in judgment to destroy apostate Jerusalem. Just like there were 40 long years that Israel spent in the desert between the Exodus and entering the land in the Old Testament. You remember that, 40 years. Every time you hear the word 40 in the Bible, it means it is a time of testing and opportunity. It means some new great vista is lying before God's people, but there's a time of testing first. How many days was Jesus in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil? 40 days. So 40 years between the people coming out in Exodus in the Old Testament and, and entering into the land, and that 40 years was a time of testing in which God sorted things out. He distinguished. There were a lot of uh, believers who uh, believed what Moses was saying enough to follow him out of Egypt. But what really distinguished between the true disciples like Joshua and Caleb and those who had a shallow, surfacey faith that did not last, what was the difference? The delay, the extension, the protraction of time for 40 years. And interestingly, the New Testament offers analogize the first uh, generation disciples to that first generation of the disciples of Moses who came out in the Exodus. Read 1 Corinthians 10. Read Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, and you have the apostles again and again saying, you're in the same situation they were. You're facing the same temptations. The same sorting out is going to occur. In the end, it was a lot easier for God to get Israel out of Egypt than it was to get Egypt out of Israel. The Passover and the Exodus was about getting God's people out of Egypt. The 40 years in the desert was about getting Egypt out of God's people. And a lot of them ended up turning back and, sh and showing that their faith was not genuine and would not last. And so we will find that in the first century, there were a lot of Christians who had enough faith in Jesus to follow him at the beginning when things were excited and everything was going great. You have 3,000 plus converted on the day of Pentecost, and everything was going great. But over time, as that 40 years draws out, and it seems that Christless Judaism is the winning team, it seems like that's the true church, that's the true people of God, that's where the blessing of God is. They have the glorious temple, they have everything going for them. What do the Christians have? Persecution, hardship, all during that 40 years of time, they're persecuted by the Jewish establishment from the beginning and throughout. And then near the end, Nero turns on them and begins to persecute them as well. So it looks like God is saying, my true people is a Christless Judaism. And this church, these Christians, they're all phonies. They believe in a phony Messiah. So you can see many, many Jewish Christians turned back during, those peri during that uh, period. That's why... After the day of Pentecost, when you have 3,000 Jews converted to Christ, what do they start doing? Selling all their property. Selling all their property and bringing it 
and having together. Now, why are they doing that? Is it because they're proto-communists? No. It's because they understand Jesus' prophecy, which Peter repeated in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed during that generation. And so what are they doing? They understand owning property in Jerusalem is not a good investment. It's not a good investment, so they're selling everything. But you can see the anticipation that it's going to happen very quickly. And you can see how 40 years begins to seem like an eternity. As you get into the 60 AD, 60s AD, many of the Jewish Christians are going to turn their back on Jesus and turn back to a Christless uh, Judaism. That's why the whole book of Hebrews was written. It was to persuade them to maintain their faith in Jesus as the one who was promised throughout the Old Testament. Okay, now the next thing we need to realize before we turn to the applications that Jesus would have for his disciples in every day is this. This is the delay of 40 years. It is not a delay of 2,000 plus years that Jesus have in mind. Is Jesus going to bodily return on the last day? Yes, he is. Will there be a final judgment of all mankind? Yes, there will be. Will there be a resurrection unto eternal life for believers or unto damnation for those who don't believe? Will there be such a resurrection for all people? Yes, there will be. But that is not what Jesus is talking about at this point in this discourse. He is talking about his coming in judgment on apostate Jerusalem during the lifetimes of these disciples. Notice that in all of these parables, the delay is a delay that falls within the lifetimes of the characters in the parables. The servant who is left in charge, the ten virgins awaiting the bridegroom, the three servants entrusted with money, all of them experience the return of the awaited person during their lifetimes. In each parable, it is the same servants or the same virgins involved at the end of the parable that were involved at the beginning of the parable. It's not one set of servants or virgins at the beginning and then a completely uh, separate set or generation of servants involved at the end. Notice also the punishment for the wicked servant in Matthew 24:51. It says the master cuts him in two. That is not what's going to happen on the last day. People are not going to be cut in two. People are either going to be resurrected unto eternal life or resurrected unto damnation and cast into the lake of fire. Being cut in two, that's a temporal judgment. That's what happens in a siege in the ancient world. People are cut in two. Just like Noah's flood, which Jesus references in Matthew 24 and says the coming of the Son of Man will be like it. Again, as vast and as worldwide as Noah's flood was, it was a temporal judgment. It was not the final judgment. Even the weeping and gnashing of teeth or being locked into darkness are associated in the scriptures with being excluded from the long-awaited kingdom of the long-awaited Messiah. The gnashing of teeth indicates not silence, but rage, which is the attitude we see in those whom God gives over to the hardness of unbelief and rebellion. A good example of what gnashing of teeth here means is the trial of Stephen, the first martyr, which we read about in Acts chapter 7. As he provides his defense before the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling body of Israel, these are the most educated, the most powerful, the most sophisticated, the fullest flower of the culture of Israel is listening to Stephen's defense. 
And when he gives them his testimony of Jesus, we are told that they gnashed at him with their teeth and they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. This is not an attitude of sadness. It's an attitude of rage. So, Jesus' return on the last day will be a bodily return, just as the angel said when the disciples watched Jesus ascend into heaven on a cloud in Acts 1.11. Remember, they watch him get carried up in a cloud into heaven. And the angels say to them, this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. There will be a bodily return of Jesus that's talking about the return of Jesus on the last day, the day of the final resurrection and the final judgment. Jesus' coming in 70 AD was not a bodily coming, but a coming in judgment through his sovereign orchestration of human events, which was a sign of Jesus' bodily coming to the Ancient of Days in heaven. Remember, when it talks about Jesus coming, the Son of Man coming on the clouds, that is a quote from Daniel 7. The Son of Man, I saw one like the Son of Man coming on the clouds. In Daniel 7, where is the Son of Man coming? On the clouds to the Ancient of Days. He's not coming to earth at all. He's coming to heaven. He's coming to the Father. He's coming to be coronated as king and to receive the kingdom. So that is what is being talked about. And remember the difference. The angels in Acts chapter 1, when they say he's going to come just as you saw him go, there they're talking about the last day. They're not talking there about a historical coming of judgment. They're talking about Jesus bodily returning on the last day. And notice the difference in the application between what Jesus tells his disciples in the Olivet Discourse and what the angels told the disciples in Acts chapter 1. When Jesus or the apostles are talking about a temporal judgment that's coming in that generation, they keep saying, watch, be ready, watch, and be ready. What do the angels say in Acts chapter 1 when they're talking about the final return of Jesus? They say, why are you staring up into heaven? Why are you watching? This is not something that's occurring in this generation. So one kind of coming, coming in judgment, watch, be ready. The other kind of coming for the last day that's going to be 2,000 plus years at least into the future, the angels are saying, why are you standing here watching? staring up into heaven. He's going to come just as you saw him go. That's all you need to know. Get busy serving him. Completely different messages. Now, we do have application to us, just as every generation of disciples does, from this particular text. But if we don't understand how it applied to them uniquely, we can't possibly understand how it applies to us who are living 2,000 years later. But one of the things that we need to see is that from time to time in history, before the last day, before the last judgment, Jesus brings about crises in cultures. He brings about sorting out. He brings about judgment on apostate cultures which have turned away from the word of the gospel. I don't know, um, maybe cultures like ours. That's really when you see the judgment of the sovereign Christ being brought forth. As the gospel is coming into a culture, you see a lot of patience. When a, gospel, when a culture has embraced the gospel, 
in his turning away from the gospel, you see far less patience. Jesus can bring about crises in history that sort things out. Every time he brings a judgment on an apostate culture that is turning away from the gospel light, he also brings about a sorting out among his own people, among his own disciples. And the sorting out is between those who have true faith that lasts and perseveres through hardship and trial, remaining faithful to Jesus, and those who have a shallow, surfacey faith that does not last over the long haul. What we want to be is faithful and wise servants. That's what Jesus asks in this question, 24, chapter 24, verse 45. Here's the point of these, all of these parables. Who is a faithful and wise servant? And this is a historical question. There are a lot of characteristics of a faithful and wise servant, but I will give you four that Jesus points out in these parables. This applies to every generation of disciples, but it particularly applies to those generations of disciples that could be living in a time of crisis when Jesus is going to sort out this from that, which could be very well the kind of time that we're going to be living through in the next few decades in our uh, country as the official uh, positions and policies and so forth uh, and coolness become more and more and more to be associated with antagonism toward Christ and the Christian faith. Here are four characteristics of a faithful and wise servant. Number one, a faithful and wise servant perseveres through prolonged hardship and trial. That one is obvious. A faithful and wise servant perseveres through prolonged hardship and trial. Only true faith can sustain you when a trial or a hardship protracts indefinitely. And that's what tends to characterize the hardest trials and the hardest hardships that we face. What tends to make them so tough is not the trial itself, it's the delay, it's the protraction. Now imagine different trials. Maybe you're sick, maybe you have a disease, maybe there's a hard time at work, maybe you're going through uh, something at school, maybe there's things going on with your friends that provide a trial. Well, it's pretty easy on the front end to say, okay, I see this. I see what Jesus wants me to do. I see how he wants me to be faithful and to bear the fruit and be true to him in this situation. And if the situation is only going to last a day or two or three or maybe a week, even a week under those circumstances can seem very tough, that's one thing. If we have any kind of serious faith at all, we can usually make it through that. But what about when it goes on for two weeks, three weeks? Four weeks, two months, three months, six months, a year, two years, five years. That is what makes it so hard. It just stretches out. And we can't tell when the end is going to come, if an end is going to come. Am I simply going to die this way? Or is Jesus going to do something about it? If he is, when? That's what makes it so, so tough. So a faithful and wise servant is one who remains keeps trusting in Jesus. It doesn't mean that they're not affected. It doesn't mean that it's easy. But the way that they wrestle with the toughness of the situation is that they wrestle with Jesus himself. The way that we see David doing with God in the Old Testament. He cries out to God, when are you going to deliver me, O God? When are you going to rise up? Don't forget me. Rise up. Hear me. Hear my cry. Hear my prayer. 
Those are not prayers of unbelief. Turning to God and saying, how long, O God, I turn to you, I cry out, I lie in a bed of tears. Those are all prayers of faith. Those are all prayers that are wrestling with God like Jacob wrestled with the angel of God in the Old Testament. Those are prayers that ultimately say with Jacob, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I will not let you go. Ultimately, the prayer of faith cries out to Jesus again and again and again and again, but it does not quit. It does not turn bitter. It does not say, you know what, Jesus? You don't deserve me. I don't think you're a very good savior. I don't like the way you're dealing with me. As it turns out, I don't think you work all things for good to those who love you. I don't think that's what you've done in my life. No. The crying out, the wrestling of faith says, I will not let you go. Come what may, Jesus, I will not let you go. If I'm dying in a prison camp for the faith, if I'm waiting to be turned limb from limb, if I'm losing everything, I am not letting you go. That is ultimately the attitude of faith. And that's why I think a lot of times when we face trials, the thing to do is this. It's the unknown and the protraction that kills us. Whatever trial you're in, say, okay, what is the worst that can possibly happen here? If it's a trial with your friends, if you're in school, if you're a young person, think, okay, the worst that can happen here is I'm going to lose my friends. I'm going to lose all my friends. That's the worst that can happen, okay? Make sure it's the absolute worst that can happen, all right? And trust me, young people, the worst that can happen is going to get a lot worse than losing all of your teenage friends. This lesson is going to repeat itself again and again and again throughout your life until you're 80 years old and you die. But imagine, what is the worst that can happen? I could lose my spouse. I could lose my job. I could lose my children. Bad things. Okay, imagine the worst that can happen and say to yourself, okay, assume that that happens. Assume the absolute worst is going to happen. Okay, Christian, what are you going to do now? Are you going to follow Jesus if the worst happens? Or are you going to give him up? Are you going to turn your back on him? And if you say that you're going to follow him, then follow him now. Maybe the worst doesn't happen. If you say you're going to follow him if the worst happens, then follow him now. That is what true faith does. The second characteristic of a faithful and wise servant, is that they serve Jesus' household, the church. That is what we see with the first parable of the wise and faithful servant. It says he serves food to the master's household. How does he serve the master? By serving the master's household. The master is away. He can't serve the master in a certain sense directly. He has to serve the master by serving the master's family. Well, in the New Testament, the church is called the household of God. You are the household of God. You are the family of Jesus. Jesus, the master, is not here. You want to serve him? You have to serve his family. You have to serve his household. This servant serves food. What does food does? It makes strong. It builds up. You want to serve Jesus? Build up his family. Build up his people. Make his people strong. That's what John says in 1 John. How do we know that we love God when we love those who are God's people? That's how we know. He says, 
How can we love God whom we have not seen if we do not love our brother and sister whom we have seen? Now, you see, that's not the way our mind works. The way our mind works is, oh, it's easy for me to love God. It's just hard for me to love all these stinking Christians with all of their problems. I love Jesus so much. That's the way we think. We think it's easier to love the one we have not seen and harder to love the ones we have seen. Jesus says, don't just You can't love me whom you have not seen if you don't love your brother and sister whom you can see. Jesus says that's the way it works. And that gives us the third characteristic of a faithful and wise servant. A faithful and wise servant identifies with Jesus' household. That's how come they end up serving. You will not serve a family, you will not serve a people, you will not serve a household unless you identify with that household. What does it mean to identify? It is to say, this is my family. These are my people. When you talk about these people, you talk about me. And you talk about my Lord. That's what it means. How do you know what household and what family you identify with? It's easy. Who are you serving? Who are you serving and who do you take your identity from? The wicked servant here identifies with the outsiders. His values of life are provided by the outsiders. He drinks with the drunkards. He's having a good time with them. That's his true family because that's who defines him. That's where he gets his values. And then he ends up neglecting and even persecuting the family of Jesus. So, you will, not, you will serve the family that you identify with. Even if you move to the middle of Antarctica and live all by yourself in a, in a cabin, in a log cabin, you still have a family. Your family is you. You've said, I am my own family. I'm the only family I care about. I serve myself. I serve my people. And that's me. Everybody else who doesn't make that kind of extreme measure has some people that they identify with. These are my people. Their characteristics, you know, cling to me. Who ultimately is your people and who do you serve? And finally, the fourth characteristic of faithful and wise servant is that they do not hedge their bets. They are all in with Jesus. And that is seen in everything they do. It's a little bit like a poker game. I don't know how often Christian analogies involve poker, but this one does. The first thing you have to do in a poker game is ante up. You're not in the game unless you ante up. It's not like, well, what am I going to get? Am I going to win anything? I want to know before I ante up. It's, you're not in the game. You ante up first. You put your money in the middle of the table or you're not in the game. That's the same way it is with discipleships. Well, in, in uh, poker, you can play penny-ante poker. It may not have any value at all. Well, what is the ante for discipleship? Jesus tells us, he says, if you seek to save your life, you will lose it. If you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. The ante for discipleship is all in. Now, that's what happens Usually it's a desperation move in poker where somebody has been losing and their pile of chips is getting pretty small and they got to make a bold move and at some point they place a bet and they take every chip and they push it in the middle of the table and they say all in. Everything is on the line at that point. The thing that's different about discipleship is Jesus says that's your ante. That's not a decision you make later. You ante, you push everything you've got into the middle of the table. 
Now, none of us does that perfectly. Jesus shows us all through our lives different chips and coins that we've held back. He says, uh, <clears throat> you haven't pushed that into the middle of the table. And we go, oh, oh, really? I didn't realize that was there. Jesus says, all in, fella. All in, girl. Come on. Get it in here. So that's what we see with the foolish versions and the wicked and lazy servants as they hedge their bets. They straddle the fence. They say they believe in the bridegroom. They say they believe in the master. But the bottom line is they don't really believe. They don't want to be all in. They want to take a wait and see attitude. They want to hedge their bets. They aren't all in. The servant who buries his master's gold is the same way. He doesn't want to put himself at risk. He's focused on what he may lose and not what he stands to gain, which means he ultimately does not really believe in the master. So seeking the kingdom means investing in the kingdom. That means investing in God's people. You take everything you have and you invest it. You put it in the middle of the table. Well, what do you invest? Well, whatever Christ has given you. What has Christ given you? Everything you have. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, who makes you to differ from another? What do you have that you have not received? Every good thing you have, Jesus has given to you. And that is what you invest in his family. That is what you invest in the kingdom. So to sum up, number one, identify with Christ's family as your family. Look around at the sinners in Jesus' church with all of their problems and say, these are my people. This is my family. Number two, build up Christ's family. Make them strong. Serve them. Number three, be all in with Jesus and his family. The church, don't hedge your vests. Invent everything you have in Christ's kingdom. And the engine of that kingdom is the church. This is what it means in every generation to be a faithful and wise servant. This is the faith that lasts. These are the ones who enter into the joy of their master. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.